Well, welcome to this month's Ask Your Herb Doctor. My name's Andrew Murray. My name's Sarah Johannesson Murray. For those of you who perhaps have never listened to the shows, they run every third Friday of the month from 7 to 8 p.m. We're both licensed medical herbalists who trained in England, graduating there with a degree in herbal medicine, and we run a clinic in Garberville where we consult with clients about a wide range of conditions and recommend supplements and nutritional counselling. Uh, you're listening to Ask Your Herb Doctor on KMedia Garbville 91.1 FM and from 7.30 until the end of the show at 8 o'clock you're invited to call in with any questions either related or unrelated to this month's subject of antioxidant theory and the uh, continued war on cancer. The number here if you live in the area is 923-3911 and there's an 800 number which is one 800 568 3723 for those outside the area um, and also for those people listening on the web so www.kmud.org uh, and this show is streaming live so I think many of our people that come from the Midwest and the East Coast are probably listening to this on the web uh, we can be reached incidentally toll free on one eight 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 wbm herb for consultations or any further information at the end of the show and or Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. So I wanted to open up uh, with a little uh, a repeat or a paraphrase of some of our previous uh, discussions with Dr. Pete, uh, both in July and in May. So uh, US Vice President Joe Biden addresses the session Cancer Moonshot, a call to action, during the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, uh, January the 19th, 2016. Biden, whose son Beau died last year at the age of 46 from brain cancer, has helped fuel Biden's sense of urgency about the project, which was first announced by President Barack Obama in his State of the Union address in January. In July's programme, we discussed... Your newsletter, uh, Dr. Pete, entitled 100 Years of Cancer Metabolism, which outlined the stark contrast between the objective and scientific inquiry-based approach to disease, exemplified by early 20th century biologists like Otto Warburg, uh, Albert St. Georgi, uh, William F. Koch, and the mechanistic cancer-sidal approaches of the multi-billion dollar cancer industry, which has failed spectacularly to find a cure for cancer, and whose funding continues to grow disproportionate to any other industry uh, whose ability to prove good on their research funding would normally cause their exit from the marketplace. It is more a matter of continuing the war and the money generated in cancer's feared diagnosis which perpetuates the industry. Cures are really not very profitable nor self-perpetuating. Thus, misled strategies to conquer cancer prevail against the truly objective and scientific discourses of yesteryear, with the emergence of globalistic monopolies with different objectives to truly curing anything but continuing to play both sides of the war, not unlike real wars are waged by corrupt governments and corrupt politicians alike. The free radical theory of ageing was conceived by Denham Harmon in the 50s when prevailing scientific opinion held that free radicals were too unstable to exist in biological systems. Two sources inspired Harmon. One was the rate of living theory, which holds that the lifespan is an inverse function of metabolic rate, which in turn is proportion, proportional to oxygen consumption, and to Rebecca Gershman's observation that hyperbaric oxygen toxicity and radiation toxicity could be explained by the same 
underlying phenomena, i.e. oxygen-free radicals. Now, Harman's hypothesis has been seriously challenged by recent studies showing that reactive oxygen species actually evoke metabolic health and longevity. And as for Rebecca Gershman's observation, it's interesting that Joseph Priestley, the English chemist who discovered oxygen in 1774, had questioned whether the gas, which is so essential to life, might also in some way be harmful. Modern research has revealed that oxygen is actually a very toxic material and that the body has a number of antioxidant defence systems that act continuously to keep tissue oxygen levels from getting too high. One of the built-in systems that accomplishes this is the enzyme superoxide dismutase discovered by uh, Erwin Fridovich and Joe McCord in 67. It begets the question why the neurosis in the ICU of most hospitals, uh, if your oxygen saturation is lower than 97%, they poison you with pure oxygen when it's common knowledge that increased CO2 is protective. Uh, like the previous show in May, uh, where Dr. Pete's newsletter explained and explored the societal paranoia versus trustanoia, uh, referring to the government's working for our benefit to keep us safe from disease, etc., uh, Dr. Pete displayed evidence contrary to this related to cancer therapies ignoring objective science, but rather acquiescing to rank order within academia. And now, Dr. Pete, you've uncovered research which shows a different perspective to our previous understanding of antioxidants and how they should actually be referred to as pro-oxidants and how that affects the organism. So thank you so much for joining us again, Dr. Pete. Hi. Uh, For those people, as always, who may have not listened to our show, uh, would you outline your academic and uh, professional background for those people listening? I appreciate that. Um, My biology study was at the University of Oregon, uh, 19... uh, 68 to 72, uh, where I uh, worked on my thesis on uh, reproductive aging and uh, uh, the oxidative metabolic changes that are involved in aging. And at that time, I was uh, really just uh, bringing together information on oxidative metabolism uh, that had been developed over the preceding 50 years. And uh, I, th- I thought the, uh, the situation was uh, ripe for sort of a conclusion. Uh, I, at the time, couldn't have imagined that uh, 45 years later it would have gone backward to the <laughs> 1890 situation uh-huh. of, of the government pushing a, a purely genetic causation of, of cancer and other diseases. Now, Harman's uh, hypothesis would have been relevant at that time, and you said in the 50s, the uh, early or mid-50s, you were um, doing this kind of uh, post-grad work? Um, uh, yeah, in the, in the 1950s, there were uh, lots of, of new discoveries. Um, uh, uh, Daniel Mazia uh, and uh, his collaborator, uh, Katsuma Dan uh, discovered the, how the uh, mitotic apparatus works, uh, the, the controlled cell division, and they found that uh, the reduction of the sulfur groups, sulfhydrals, mm-hmm. uh, increase at the time of, of cell division. And if you uh, look at those as the, the uh, interface between uh, metabolic energy production and cell growth and differentiation. 
it, it suggests a, a very direct course to uh, uh, curing the uh, tumor-producing diseases at least and the inf- inflammatory diseases uh, by working on metabolism. Uh, mm-hmm. The genes are only in the background. Right. Um, don't have uh, any uh, role in therapy, actually, except uh, everyone has to have genes. <laughs> right, to produce proteins and everything else. Okay, we'll, we'll get into a little bit later how the uh, gene theory has been totally discredited in a lot of ways in terms of uh, the, uh, the the evidence that we'll bring out in some of these abstracts. But um, in terms of... Um, what uh, what interested me when I started reading uh, these abstracts and articles was that um, I think a lot of people recognize the term oxidant and antioxidant probably erroneously, and we've always looked at antioxidants as being uh, the things we were necessarily looking for, uh, when in fact when they've done autopsies um, in the brain, they find uh, things like glutathione, which is one of the main antioxidants in the system, is actually not that depleted. And so they're looking at other reasons uh, for aging and cell death, etc. How how um, is your, uh, your your current understanding of antioxidants different? Um, because essentially, what I think you're trying to ex- trying to say was that oxidants really should be termed um, sorry, antioxidants should really be termed pro-oxidants. Um, yeah, the ones that are therapeutically useful, uh, such as, as vitamin E and vitamin C, uh, actually uh, shift the balance inside the cell. Uh, vitamin C is known to be in a very highly oxidized condition, so it isn't really the vitamin C we know. Right. It's uh, dehydroascorbate when it is inside a healthy cell. Okay. And uh, these are maintaining uh, the uh, it's actually a constant flow of electrons but the the balance at every moment is uh, pushed in the direction closer to oxygen and farther from the reducing electrons uh, and so if you're deficient in vitamin E and vitamin C and so on the electrons uh, predominate and uh, shift uh, over to a uh, uh, reducing the sulfur groups all through the cell into the sulfhydryl form, uh, promoting inflammation. And if you think about what happens when any kind of injury happens, whether it's a a microbe or uh, getting stuck with a thorn or whatever, Uh you you disrupt the ability of the, the organized tissue to deliver oxygen and sugar and other nutrients to the cell right. and and so the cell in that area is starved can't oxidize and it has an immediate shift over to the uh, basically the antioxidant uh, side uh, the, the cell has a, a variety of enzymes that uh, function as antioxidants but uh, they are only activated uh, during injury or stress, and uh, what happens to the cells in that condition is the sulfhydryls are, are reduced, the mitotic apparatus is activated, the cells de-differentiate, lose their functions except to grow and divide and move, so they creep into the injured area and multiply to uh, repair the 
area, and then uh, if they if the surrounding uh, organism is able to deliver oxygen and sugar and other nutrients, uh, then they are able to differentiate and uh, finish the healing process. Right. So, so this whole uh, theory of antioxidant that we don't want to oxidize things is really we want the cell to be oxidizing, and an injured cell is not using the oxygen. It's actually in an anti-oxygen state. Um, yeah, and uh, if you get stuck in the antioxidant state, that uh, keeps the healing process from being completed, and and that's where cancer is. It's stuck in the uh, inflamed antioxidant state, uh, only able to divide without uh, knowing exactly what it should be doing. So, how can we understand? Sorry, under how can okay. we understand how CoQ10 and naringenin and apigenin are actually working on the inside of the cell? The apigenin and naringenin from like orange peel, marmalade, and celery seeds, and um, apigenin from celery seeds. Those uh, potent the, antioxidants, as we're told, they're antioxidants, but how are they actually working in the cell? Uh, well, uh, the coenzyme Q10 is now known uh, to fit uh, very specifically in the uh, certain places in the mitochondria uh, that uh, deliver electrons to the uh, electron transport system, delivering it uh, ultimately to oxygen to uh, uh, complete the uh, production of ATP and carbon dioxide. Uh, so it, it plugs right into the, the oxidative system. So it's actually uh, oxidizing. It's oxidizing everything upstream uh, to deliver those electrons into the oxidizing uh, 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 pigments, which deliver the electrons to oxygen. So it, it's a necessary link between oxygen and the uh, all of the reducing uh, factors. So um, if you don't have that link, uh, that's one of the essential links that uh, you, you need to prevent the electrons from going into the uh, growth cell division system. Right, because if they don't have, if the cells don't have enough oxygen, then they'll start dividing and potentially becoming cancerous if they don't get that oxygen and the oxidizing process happening. Yeah, and where the actual antioxidant function comes in is when you have an oversupply of polyunsaturated fats, for example. In When you don't have enough oxygen and go into that inflamed cell division state, uh, the electrons that can't be uh, taken up by oxygen are free to uh, locate on iron atoms, for example. And the iron, when it's reduced, uh, there's always some potential iron. Uh, but uh, the older you are, the more free iron there's likely to be in your cells. Uh, the electrons activate the iron, which then attacks any of the uh, polyunsaturated fats in the environment. And uh, that uh, sets up an oxygen-consuming system which produces nothing of value. Uh, the electrons have no place proper to go, so they go to iron, which uh, then gives its electron to the 
polyunsaturated fat, uh, which becomes a free radical uh, and uh, consumes, reacts directly then sometimes with oxygen or with more, more iron, and you get uh, cycles of uh, oxidation without purpose. Right, okay, so you want the oxidation to be in the cell producing carbon dioxide using sugar and oxygen and the whole proper cellular respiration to be going on, not to where you're in this reduced state or your your body, the PUFA, the polyunsaturated fats are so hungry for oxygen and so is the iron and so those things are oxidizing and not producing. Is that a good way to understand it? Uh, yeah, and in the process of consuming oxygen, they are creating oxygen starvation. Right. And and so they're setting up the situation uh, to to spread. Uh, so it's a very energy wasteful uh, situation. Yeah, yeah an oxygen wasting system. Yeah. Is that because the polyunsaturates will attract the oxygens more strongly than the respiring cell? Um, yeah, yeah, they become a, a, a trap for oxygen, and as they deteriorate, they interact with the iron and proteins and create uh, imitation oxidative enzymes, except uh, as a short circuit directly between NADH and oxygen by way of the uh, iron and uh, uh, proteins that are condensed uh, in the form of age pigment or lipofuscin made up of polyunsaturated fats and parts of the cell which have been destroyed. Uh, and th- so those function as a very powerful oxygen sink, uh, keeping the mitochondria uh, from getting the oxygen they need. So you don't want to. Yeah. So that's why you don't want to eat fried foods that are fried in liquid vegetable oils right. because you're going to create a, a oxygen starvation for your cells that need the oxygen because the vegetable oil is going to soak it all up. Um, yeah, and uh, with time, uh, as th- that process accumulates, uh, for example, small amounts, uh, uh, practically invisible, of of the age pigment uh, begin accumulating and uh, keeping those cells in a state in which they take up preferentially more of the polyunsaturated fats if they're available. And so with age, uh, organs like the brain, which are normally uh, very high energy users, become slowed down and reduced and preferentially concentrate more and more of the highly unsaturated fats, especially DHA, the the predominant fat in fish oil, concentrates more and more in the brain with age and makes the brain more and more susceptible to the lipid peroxidation and uh, losing, losing function because the oxygen is being diverted. Yeah, and it's the byproducts of that lipid peroxidation which are themselves very damaging. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and tends to produce more of the uh, age pigment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what is cumulative is is the uh, uh, catalytic uh, products of the degenerating uh, polyunsaturates. Uh, not specifically mutations in the mitochondria, which the uh, the Harman free radical theory of aging insisted on. Right. 
Okay, good. Let me, let me hold you there. You're asking, uh, you're listening to Ask Your Rev, Dr. KMD Garberville, 91.1 FM. Uh, we're very pleased to have Dr. Raymond Pete with us exploring the uh, latest concepts in ox- oxidants, antioxidants, uh, cancer theory. Uh, the lines will be open from 7.30 to 8 o'clock if uh, callers would like to call in with any questions either related to this month's subject or to other relevant subjects surrounding uh, health. Uh, the number here for in the area is 923 Well, there's an 800 number for those out of state, perhaps uh, 800-568-3723. And Dr. P, uh, that's brought up an interesting point here, Lipofushkin. So I know we've mentioned it many times in the past uh, in reference to fish oils, uh, which unfortunately are still portrayed as being very healthful and is still a very multi-billion dollar industry for certain corporations. Um, obviously, these things take a long time before they reach the mainstream and people understand that what they're doing for themselves is actually very uh, harmful. Um, so I, th- I was thinking about the uh, link, and it's a little bit of a kind of curveball, but um, the... Outbreak of Zika. Let's just let's just uh, explore. I haven't really uh, prepared. I know you haven't prepared for it, but I know you've normally got a very different perspective at which to approach uh, a, a problem. So, in terms of Zika and the prevalence of microcephaly, or if that indeed is a manifestation of Zika only, um, I was looking earlier on uh, just just uh, at Lipofushkin in general. Um, I came across the uh, term uh, neuronal ceroid lipofushkinosis. Now, ceroid apparently is a product that's produced as a result of the inability to uh, remove uh, lipofushkin. And there were apparently there eight types or so they've recognized these types or subtypes. Uh, genetically separate uh, neurodegenerative disorders that result, as I said, from the excessive accumulation of the pigment lipofushkin. Um, now, with reference, like I said, to steroid, it's apparently formed when a disposal system for lipofushkin is overloaded. But what caught my attention was that they had uh, eight types, and types one, two, and three uh, were associated with microcephaly. And um, I know that without bringing up this or changing the subject of this month's show to Zika and the, uh, you know, the political ramifications and or all the conspiracy theories about Zika. Um, in terms of microcephaly in the infantile brain developing in utero with reference to polyunsaturates and the production of lipofushkin and or the inability to remove the waste producing lipofushkinosis, um, how do you, uh, how, how do you see microcephaly in, in, uh, in, in the kind of, uh, in the overall picture for the explanation of what Zika does to uh, infantile children? Um, well, it could be a virus like that, or it could be the insecticides that people absorb when they're spraying the mosquitoes that carry the virus. Okay. Uh, the, um, uh, uh, the insecticides are known to, uh, damage brain development, but uh, 50 years ago with experiments in mice and then a little later uh, in dogs, they found that uh, in proportion to the unsaturation of the fat in the mother's diet, uh, the brain development was retarded. The, right. the, animal, the baby animals had smaller brains and were less able to learn in proportion to the amount of, of prenatal uh, polyunsaturated fat they absorbed. 
Because isn't it true that the placenta will try and filter out all of the polyunsaturated fat from the mother's diet? Um, uh, Yeah, the placenta preferentially absorbs uh, glucose and fructose, uh, but uh, if the diet, uh, if the mother happens to have low uh, blood glucose, uh, then more of the uh, mother's uh, circulating fats as your blood sugar goes down, uh, you liberate into the bloodstream mm-hmm. free fatty acids. So when the mother has hypoglycemia, uh, the placenta loses the ability to uh, screen out the fats to some extent, where the, the baby should make its own brain fats purely from glucose. <clears throat> and those would be saturated fats. Those wouldn't be polyunsaturated fats, correct? Well, uh, primarily saturated, but then... Uh, we intrinsically uh, are able to make a series of polyunsaturated fats called the uh, omega minus nine series, oh, and, like what's and in those olive oil? are uh, uh, present in any healthy baby's brain, uh, whether it's a human or a cow, or a bird or rodent. Uh, the the uh, developing brain turns sugar into saturated fats, and uh, the omega nine minus nine series, and, and the and the, and the brain is predominantly uh, lipid in its structure. Um, about fifty percent yeah. fat, very high fat content compared yeah. to uh, other tissues. Okay, so uh, uh, another thing that came out looking at the uh, breakdown of the different subtypes of uh, lipofuscinosis uh, were those that were associated positively with epilepsy either childhood epilepsy, um, midlife, or late-life epilepsy. Um, how, do you, how do you see epilepsy in relation to polyunsaturates in the diet? Uh, vitamin E has been proven to uh, reduce uh, the incidence of seizures in uh, lots of animal experiments. And uh, the process of... Uh, uh, stress in in a brain cell uh, lowers the oxygen availability, uh, triggers uh, that reductive process, uh, uh, causing lipid peroxidation. And uh, if, if your tissues are well saturated with vitamin E, uh, that's much less likely to happen. Okay. Okay, so let's uh, let's move on to a couple of other uh, other examples of uh, the evidence that's been uh, disproven uh, in terms of mitochondrial energy production, mitochondrial health, uh, the theory of aging. Um, there, there are instances. Well, not instances. It's very well documented knowledge that parrots are very long lived uh, compared uh, to quail, for example, and. Uh, there's a naked mole rat which lives for 32 years compared to regular mice that live for three years. Uh, in terms of the metabolic energy of an organism to deal with um, insults, essentially, uh, by having the energy to overcome that in the system, uh, what, do you, what do you have to uh, uh, say about the longevity of uh, different species uh, that exist uh, even within the same species, so the, the parrots and the quail and the mole rat and, and what about the a regular flamingos? mouse. Well, flamingos also long-lived, yeah. Um, uh, there are 
a few researchers who have uh, uh, surveyed a lot of different animals and found that the uh, uh, highly unsaturated animals in a given species uh, don't live as long as those less highly unsaturated. Uh, uh, Hulbert and Pamplona are two of the people who have done the most research, and uh, they find that birds in general are much less unsaturated in all their tissues uh, than mammals, and part of that is that they uh, don't activate enzymes that extend, uh, for example, linoleic acid uh, in a, a mammal is uh, processed to uh, remove electrons until it uh, can, uh, w with the addition of more carbons, can become uh, EPA or DHA, the highly unstable uh, polyunsaturates. Uh, the birds simply don't use those enzymes to the extent that mammals do. Oh, so but, they can eat oh, a polyunsaturate and it just doesn't turn into the EPA or the DHA. Yeah, uh, so they have more of the unprocessed uh, linoleic acid uh, than the, the highly uh, unstable longer ones. Uh, and part of that, I think, is because they live at a much higher body temperature than mammals. Mammals are, are usually uh, somewhere between 90 and uh, 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and the birds generally are well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, up to as much as 110 degrees. And, and that means that they will very quickly oxidize uh, any of the uh, most unstable fats. If, if they eat uh, something with a, a highly unsaturated fat, it's more likely that the fat will be used for energy uh, rather than circulating to cause trouble. So, uh, how about the uh, how about the uh, uh, decreased um, uh, problems with PUFA in the presence of higher temperature? You're saying that just purely the higher temperature could cause PUFA to be oxidized more rapidly, and therefore not well, not within the cell, but actually within a GI tract or um, elsewhere. Well, he's just saying uh, yeah. it's not going to get stored, and it will get right. used up for fuel right away because their metabolism is so fast. Yeah, yeah even in a, a mammal. At say uh, 98 degrees, uh, it turns out that a very high proportion of of the DHA breaks down even by the time it gets into the bloodstream, right. uh, and it's the breakdown products mm -hmm. that uh, act on the immune system to suppress inflammation by uh, stopping temporarily stopping the production of prostaglandins. Okay, we actually have a couple of callers, so let's uh, let's start in with our first caller. Caller, uh, you're on the air. Uh, where are you from? Hello, okay, caller. Okay, me already. Yeah, I can hear you. Now, where are you from, caller? Okay, hi. Well, I'm calling you from way, way far away. Um, I'm calling you from Finland in Europe. Finland, excellent. <laughs> the uh, the sun hasn't risen yet and will not rise for another couple of hours. <laughs> Oh, well, good to hear you. Good to hear your voice from Finland. All the best. What's your question for Dr. Pete? Um, well, I'd like to uh, first thank you for the show, and I'd like your opinion about two very different types of devices. The first one are the so-called PEMF devices, like Earth Pulse, 
um, delta sleep. The goal would be to induce delta sleep in a 46-year-old uh, male as myself. And the second type of device I'd like your opinion on is CO2 breathing machines and CO2 bath devices. Yeah. Okay, well, the CO2 question, no problem. The first one, Dr. Pete, have you heard of this device, a PENF? Uh, no, I don't know what it means. Can you, can, uh, Caller, can you uh, just elaborate a little bit on the, uh, uh, the fundamentals of this? Sure. Uh, so those are, um, I think, uh, in the PEMF, there must be EM, must be electromagnetic field. So it's EM. There are devices okay, yeah, that e you wear on your upper chest, okay. and they're supposed to uh, deliver uh, some light uh, pulsing ele electromagnetic signal to induce deep sleep, like delta sleep. Okay. Interesting. Dr. P, what do you think about that EMF generator for... Uh about uh, 40 years ago, uh, there was research on uh, stimulating the, the brain uh, across from one temple to the other uh, with gentle, uh, just uh, one or two volts and uh, very few microamps of current uh, would be enough to uh, induce those uh, slower rhythms of the brain uh, and improve sleep. Uh, but I don't know what the present... Uh, apparatus is. Do you know, sir? Do you know what the volts are of the, the machine you're discussing? Sure. I think um, that we're in a ten. Now, I'm not sure about the hertz and the micro and mega, but something around ten. Uh, let me check. Um, so basically, the the latest devices seem to be have to be worn on on some artery between. Uh, the heart and uh, one of the sides, like uh, the the arm, and I think it's something like uh, ten hertz or um, something like that. But I'm not sure about the. Uh, yeah, I think uh, you can vary them from one to fourteen hertz, but they recommend mostly around ten, eight right. or ten hertz. Yeah, ten is a natural natural frequency for humans okay well i, I don't i don't know if we can uh expand too much on that but definitely can with the um co2 question so um your main question about the co2 was yeah so um now i can see for example on the repeat forum there are people doing all kinds of experiments and one of them being to uh, basically bathe, or well, there, there's, there are breathing machines where you can regulate how much CO2 you're getting. Okay. And then uh, one gentleman even invented some kind of bath device. Okay. So it's like a huge plastic balloon that you wrap around yourself, and there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's something for access to or for infusing yourself basically right, with, with CO2, uh, CO2 and this can be worn for yeah. an hour or so. Yeah, okay. we, we've yeah. used that with we've our clients that with yeah. injury that they wrap their okay. injured limb in a plastic bag that they filled up with pure carbon dioxide. It's, it certainly increases the uh, vasodilation and uh, gives you that sense of warmth that you'd either get from CO2 gas or being in these uh, soda waters that uh, liberate CO2. I know Dr. Pete's got a lot to say about carbon dioxide. Let me let me let you say uh, uh, what you want to say about CO2, Dr. Pete, because you're always more eloquent. Um, 
I think it was in 1908 that someone wrote an article about the medical uses, of both as uh, of, treating colon inflammation, vaginal inflammation and such, with the actual application of the gas, uh, or filling a bathtub, uh, since CO2 is heavier than air, if you seal the drains on a bathtub, you can just fill the bathtub with it and get in. And uh, the person said an hour in the bathtub was like uh, a day at the beach. You could probably leave your clothes on as well, wow. couldn't you? Uh, yeah, you yeah. don't have to take your clothes <laughs> off because it instantly goes right through the clothing. You can feel it as a, a warm sensation because it, it uh, relaxes blood vessels in the skin. And uh, we uh, have used uh, huge plastic bags that come up to the shoulders and uh, you, you fill the bag and then uh, get on a chair or something so that you can step in it without spilling the CO2 and, and pull it up uh, around your body without spilling it and then uh, uh, tighten it around the top. And uh, that will usually uh, stay put for uh, at least an hour and your skin uh, gets pink and warm. Uh, from the r relaxing effect, and it, it has a systemic effect. It absorbs uh, very quickly into your uh, bloodstream and uh, affects your blood pressure, improves uh, pumping efficiency of your heart, reducing peripheral resistance in the arteries. Yeah, positively associated with uh, good health. Um, yeah, and it, um, the, the increasing your CO2 uh, lowers all of the transmitters of inflammation uh, by shifting you out of the uh, over-reduced electronic state. It, it uh, suppresses lactic acid production, for example. It helps your, body, your mitochondria to use the oxygen quickly. Um, it, yeah, in many different ways. It, it activates the Krebs cycle and uh, reduces... Uh, meaningless excitation uh, lets you uh, produce the uh, energy in the right way rather than an inflamed, pointless way. Um, out of curiosity, can you drink sparkling water, and would that help? Oh, oh, like uh, internally uh, as opposed to externally? Uh, you, um, you tend to burp it out and lose much of it, but uh, the little bit you absorb is very helpful. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so calming on an upset stomach, right? Soda water or... Um, yeah, I, I think Priestley was really working on carbon dioxide when he accidentally <laughs> discovered oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Well, thank you for your call, caller. We do have another caller on the air, so let's take this next caller. Where are you from, caller? Hello? Hi, where are you, where are you from? Hi, uh, near Philipsville. Okay, hi, what's your question? Um, I have a couple of questions. Hello? Uh-oh. I think you've cut her off. If you, can you get her back? Uh, we lost her. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Oh, okay. There you go. Um, yeah, um, I've got two basic questions um, about the antioxidants. Number one, I want to get clear about what's good and what's bad. Um, CoQ10, is that good or not? I've always heard that that was very good for your heart. Is that good or is that not good? It's very good. It is good. So it's good to take CoQ10. Uh, how much do you think? I've been taking 100, 100 milligrams a day. Is that a good amount? 
I don't think anyone really knows what the best amount is. You don't know the amount. Okay. Now, what about EPA? I've heard that EPA, uh, as a, um, you know, the vitamin, um, uh, not vitamin E, but the, um, um, you know what I'm talking Fish about. Fish oil. Polyunsaturated oil, yeah. Yeah. Um, is, uh, is that good or bad? I heard that EPA Definitely was really bad. good to support the heart function. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's exactly the wrong kind of yeah. antioxidant. It's the reductive kind that imitates stress and, and promotes uh, degenerative processes. So it's okay to have CoQ10 but not to have EPA? That's correct. Uh-huh. And it also says that it supports your mood and is better for your brain function. And, and you don't think that either? No, definitely not better for your brain function. No, that was... What we were discussing earlier and how an aging brain will have more and more of this EPA, which means that your brain actually gets less oxygen and oh, it becomes more oh, demented okay. and well, more uh, senile. And what about vitamin E? Is that good or not? Yeah, that's one of the main antioxidants Dr. Pete was uh, outlining at the beginning one. of the show, yeah, along with vitamin C. And vitamin K, too, okay. functions with coenzyme Q10 okay. to deliver uh, energy. And do you think glucosamine is good for the joint? Uh, which? Glucosamine. Oh, um, I'm doubtful about that. Uh, it's been associated with with uh, changes in the pancreas, uh, like diabetes. Hmm. Okay, so you're not sure about that one. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, well, thank you very much. Thank you. Just, thank, thank you for your questions. Just okay. last month, an article came out by uh, Sue and Yin, uh, identifying EPA and DHA. As brain toxic fat. <laughs> uh, there you go. Good. I mean, the, the evidence is just so overwhelming. I don't know how people that listen to this show can possibly continue eating or, or taking this stuff. Anyway, uh, it takes a long time sometimes for people to uh, come to finally. Uh, well, finally, there's just so much mainstream media. It's just like yeah. with everything else. There's so much mainstream media constant, telling you that EPA and DHA are good fight. for your brain. Okay, we have another caller on the air. So let's take this next caller. Call away from. And what's your I am question? from the San Francisco Bay Area. Hi, what's your question? Um, Dr. Pete, uh, I've noticed tremendous uh, results by being on your nutrition program. I consult with Andrew Murray, and um, things have been wonderful and, and even better now that I'm on thyroid hormone. My question is, why are my eyes changing colors? I noticed they were a, a brown, and now they're getting lighter and lighter. My, my guess is they might become a hazel. But online, a lot of people, like raw vegan people on YouTube, are saying that their eyes change from brown to blue. And I guess the lighter your eyes color is, the healthier you are. So my question is, why is this happening? And is it true that the the lighter color your eyes are, the healthier you are? I don't know about that, but I know that um, people who use prostaglandins as eye drops to treat glaucoma very often have a darkening of of the uh, uh, iris, and uh, th- that I think is a, a directly toxic effect. Where the uh, like ultraviolet light darkens your skin because it's injuring it, and the pigment is a defensive reaction to protect you against uh, ultraviolet light. Uh, I think the uh, prostaglandin, which is made from polyunsaturated fats, uh, is uh, activating the defensive formation of pigment in the iris. So I I suspect that it's good if you uh, reduce your uh, polyunsaturated fat intake and have lightening of your iris. I suspect it's a a corrective process. 
thank you very much. All right, thank you for your call. Okay, we have another caller on the uh, on the line, so let's take this next caller. Caller, where are you from? Yes, uh, this is the first caller again. Thank you for okay. letting me jump in line again. No I, I had um, another question that came to mind. Um, does MCT oil do everything, every good thing that, uh, that you recommend or that you say coconut oil can do from a health and metabolism point of view? So, Dr. Pete, medium-chain triglycerides, do they do the same thing as coconut oil? Um, yeah, essentially they're doing the same uh, thing of bypassing uh, your stored uh, polyunsaturated fats and uh, letting you oxidize more safely the saturated fats. But uh, one of the problems is that uh, they are so uh, mobile relative to the longer chains that they can be irritating to your stomach and intestines. So uh, you have to take it uh, in a good balance with other foods. And that's why a lot of times these, Thank you so much. these uh, supplements like the vitamin D is in it, MCT oil or the vitamin K, they can be irritating on um, people's digestion and therefore then they can use those vitamins topically if they experience intestinal irritation from the MCTs. And that was another question, Dr. I wanted to ask you. Can you please describe the relation between vitamin K and CoQ10? Is it a precursor for CoQ10? Um, it it um, works at the same site in the mitochondrion, and it seems to just act as a stabilizer or amplifier of the effect of, co- of coenzyme Q10. So it's almost like if you take vitamin K, you're helping protect the CoQ10 that you have in your system? Um, uh, yeah, I think vitamin E and, and K both have that function of, of working at the CoQ10 site. So do you think it's necessary for someone to supplement with CoQ10 if they're using vitamin K? Oh, uh, well, I wouldn't mix them uh, even in your stomach. I think it's good to take them at a different time because uh, I've, I've seen a reaction which, uh, in the, uh, at least in the presence of light, I think it might uh, cause other reactions to happen when when the vitamin E reacts with uh, vitamin K. Okay, we have another caller, so let's take this next caller. You're on the air. Where are you from? Hi, um, this is um, Sue. I'm in Albion. Albion. Okay, hi. What's your question? Um, I got some thyroid levels um, drawn because um, I do have Hashimoto's. It inflamed quite a bit. Um, and I just wanted to read them out and see, because there's a uh, T3 level, uh, uh, T4, TSH. TSH was 0.48, free T4, 0.97, and the T3 was 110 nanograms per deciliter. And uh, the endocrinologist, was saying to increase a thyroid medication to kind of make the thyroid go to sleep so that the inflammation would go down. And I wanted to get Dr. Pete's thoughts, and I'd like to hang up unless he has a question for me. Sure. Dr. Pete? Um, uh, Yeah, the the, um, keeping the TSH, uh, that's probably a safe level, but I know lots of people who keep it at zero point zero one and less and uh, feel fine but um, uh, 
the TSH is a promoter of inflammation, mm-hmm. not only in the thyroid gland, but in blood vessels, bone marrow, every place it's been studied, it promotes inflammation. And it happens to be activated by the stressed, oxygen-deprived condition of the cells. Mm-hmm. So it's one of the mediators of the oxygen-deficient stress condition, along with estrogen, prostaglandins, cortisol, and nitric oxide. TSH itself is an inflammation promoter. So if you govern your dose by things like heart rate, temperature, and especially your middle of the day temperature and resting heart rate, and your appetite and and thirst and uh, quality of sleep. Uh, and uh, uh, a doctor can uh, do the Achilles reflex relaxation test uh, to find out how your nerves and muscles are, are acting. Uh, the people uh, are, have different sensitivities to the T3 and T4, and uh, the tissue-specific effect of either of those uh, is affected by how inflamed you are generally. Uh, uh, so if you, if you have a lot of polyunsaturated fat and prostaglandins circulating, uh, then a given amount of T3 isn't going to have the same local effect on any of your tissues. So really this persistence of an inflamed thyroid that's where I'm feeling like I'm, I'm being strangled may have more to do with my generalized inflammatory response. Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay, and, and also, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Also, when you're low thyroid, you produce a lot of antibodies to lots of things, and you can also produce antibodies to your own thyroid. So it's and, part of the low thyroid condition is producing extra antibodies. And those antibodies are part of a cleanup process. So when you stop the inflammation, uh, it, the, the antibody production will stop, and then uh, it'll take several months for the circulating level of the antibodies to disappear. So basically, to summarize, to try to keep your TSH as close to zero as possible, and the blood levels of free T3 and free T4 are not as indicative of a... Um, well, not a good measurement or not a good guideline to assess your thyroid function, all those things Dr. Pete mentioned, like your heart rate, your temperature, and your appetite. Those things are much more accurate at diagnosing yourself. Um, and uh, George Kreil at the Cleveland Clinic in the 1970s uh, found that uh, even for most types of, of thyroid cancer, if you keep your TSH near zero, uh, it keeps uh, down almost all of the recurrences of thyroid cancer. Okay, we have another caller, so let's take this next caller. Call away from um, Miranda. Miranda, what's your question? Okay, it's regarding magnesium supplement supplementation. I take um, a uh, magnesium glycinate uh, one in the morning, and I take one in the evening, and I find that it helps my nervous system in general, but 
my one complaint is is that whenever I um, do it, whenever I start supplementing with magnesium, I find that my belly fat um, gets worse. And I mean, people that see me with my clothes on would say I'm just this tall, gawky guy. But um, underneath my that belly flat is is very pronounced, and if I drop the magnesium, I seem to be it doesn't seem to be quite as pronounced. But I wondered, I had read from another source many years ago that magnesium chloride was that didn't didn't um, stoke that problem, and that most other, especially magnesium oxide, would really provoke it. But um, I was just wondering if uh, you have any thoughts on that. Dr. Pete, what do you think about uh, magnesium glycinite as a substance that might be good? I've never used that one myself, but um, all of the uh, forms uh, that that I've experimented with, and uh, for quite a few other people, uh, magnesium supplements uh, can cause intestinal inflammation or irritation. Mm -hmm. And... I would guess that uh, that's happening with a, an increase of histamine, nitric oxide, and, and absorbing endotoxin and such. Yeah, so it's not actually uh, an increase in belly flattening quality. It's probably more due to a, uh, an increased bogginess or a water retention within the tissues uh, that this magnesium may be uh, uh, causing uh, that would then push your stomach further out and might make you feel like you'd actually increase more fat. Is that what you're suggesting, Dr. Are you suggesting that that increased inflammation could actually lay down more fat? Well, well, the fat would increase over a period of many months or years, but the the water can increase overnight. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I'm taking uh, a prostate medication because I have an enlarged prostate, but uh, PSA had no no indication that it was out of an abnormal range. So I am playing with my water a bit. I, I have to go to the bathroom quite a bit because I'm taking this herbal from New Chapter for um, for the prostate. Okay. So uh, you're finding benefit from it? That's probably based on uh, pumpkin seed extract and saw palmetto. Right, right. Yes, it does have those for sure. Um, I don't know. You know, it's, from, it's almost from not uh, passing enough urine to... Passing too much, uh, going, getting up too many times during the night, um, but I, I, it feels it feels healthier than insufficient urine flow. Dr. P, a, a quick. We've only got a few minutes left here at the end of the show, yeah. but a, a quick uh, a quick word on uh, prostatic hypertrophy, benign prostatic hypertrophy, and uh, you know, urination difficulties, and what your approach to that would be. Uh, well, the thyroid is the basic thing because it helps you make the anti-inflammatory pro-oxygen steroids uh, pregnenolone, progesterone, DHEA and testosterone and keeps down the estrogen and uh, when anything is is irritating your intestine increasing uh, histamine and and other uh, anti-oxidative mediators uh, the um, Inflammation spreads from your intestine through your whole uh, pelvis uh, in particular, and it will cause uh, the uh, smooth muscle of the bladder wall to become hyperactive and oversensitive, and and that causes frequent urination. And uh, lots of people 
assume that there's something uh, wrong with her prostate when it's really uh, the, the uh, intestine inflaming the whole uh, urinary system. I see. And so with, uh, as you were saying, if the magnesium is uh, inflaming the irritation, then, then the magnesium might be possibly indicated? Um, I think so. You can get adequate magnesium if your thyroid lets your cells retain magnesium, uh, then uh, 400 milligrams per day is easy to get from foods, uh, fruit, fruit juice, milk, uh, cheese, eggs, meat, uh, seafood. All of those things are very good sources of, of magnesium coffee. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of those are, um, I'm definitely a committed vegetarian, so I have, uh, I don't have eggs. Okay, I don't want to uh, butt in there, but let's uh, let's put it like this. It's three minutes to 8 o'clock, and we're going to wrap up with the show here. So thank you very much for your call, caller, and uh, all the callers we received. Yes, thank you very much. And I just want to say one more thing about magnesium and thyroid. Dr. Pete, you've said that when you have a thyroid deficiency, you're not able to store magnesium properly, and so it almost is like you have a magnesium deficiency as well. Um, yeah, and you can correct a magnesium deficiency uh, if you... Uh, uh, go at your thyroid dosing carefully uh, over a few days. It helps you extract it from your ordinary diet. Right. So you uh, don't need to supplement such large doses. Yeah. In the first two or three days, if you're going to start a thyroid supplement, sometimes the magnesium helps you adapt more quickly to the thyroid. But, but usually, uh, for a vegetarian, you can uh, boil any kind of green leaves. doesn't matter. Uh, what kind, but the magnesium comes out very quickly when you boil it. Just make sure and, to drink the water you boiled in. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time. I don't want to cut you off, Dr. Pete. I just want to make sure people know how to reach you. Uh, so, once again, thanks so much for giving your time. Uh, you're always so very generous, and uh, we really do appreciate it. For those people who have heard Dr. Pete or want to find out more about him, www.raypeat.com. Lots of articles, scientifically referenced. Uh, he really does know what he's talking about. For those of you who've uh, listened to the show, we can also be reached toll-free on one eight 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 wbm herb Monday through Friday for consultations or further information. My name's Andrew Murray. My name's Sarah Johannesson Murray. Thank you for tuning in tonight. We've enjoyed your calls. Good night.